In the gospel that was read to us just now, we heard Jesus' familiar warning against trying to serve two masters, God and money. Worrying about what we will eat or drink or how we will be clothed, Jesus says, can gnaw away at our faith in the Lord who has promised to provide for us. He gives the famous illustration of God's care for the lilies of the field, to which God gives clothes more beautiful than Solomon could have wished for, and the birds of the air that he feeds and cares for in spite of their lightness and littleness, which reminded me of one of my favorite cartoons. I actually mentioned this in class last Friday and found it this week. Is it up there, Rin? Uh, I don't know whether you can read the caption, but there's a, obviously a factory and birds are popping out, but each bird as it pops out of the machine says, moo. And so he's on the phone and he says, um, I can't remember it. Hello, beasts of the field. This is Lou over in Birds of the Air. Anything funny going on at your end? <laughs> Never forget your sense of humor when you read scripture. If you're ever tempted to forget Jesus' own down-to-earth Jewishness, you only have to read the last verse of the gospel passage again. Not in a churchy voice, but in a... In Joan reads so beautifully, I was just about ready to say amen, and that was it, because if it's read well, it just communicates so clearly. So read it in a real voice to hear the typical Jewish joke in it. It says, and you can read this very solemnly, therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. <laughs> and that's how scripture used to be read to me, but I can imagine Jesus sitting at the knee of maybe his Aunt Elizabeth, a Jewish mom who says, Oi, Bubala, you're going to take today's worry and bring them into tomorrow? You don't think tomorrow will have enough worry for itself already? <laughs> That's what he's saying. Tomorrow's got enough worries. Don't import them. And the message that he gives there is really the same one that Paul sums up for Timothy in that famous little phrase, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Don't get Paul wrong here. Money's not the problem. Money's a blessing. It's a gift. But when we come to depend on it for our security rather than on God's provision, the love we're meant to have for the giver is misdirected and twisted toward the gift. And what had been good becomes to us an idol. But you know that. I think that as Jesus was teaching that truth on that Judean hillside, he was thinking about the other episode that we read about from the passage in Exodus. Let's work our way through this and take a look at what it has for us. The Lord says to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening, quail came and covered the camp. Covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. This is a very tricky passage, by the way. People are not sure about what the shape or size or appearance of this was, and that makes sense because of the word, as Joan has already told you, means, I'm not so sure. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? 
for they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. No one is to keep any of it till morning. So in an effort to bring this into the present day, <laughs> I've told many of you, I started preaching. I don't do an awful lot of it, but I've done my share, probably more than my share. When my kids were little, and they needed illustrations. And still today, if I speak anywhere, and I'm talking to one of my children, now grown up and married, all but one, they'll say, what was the illustration? What did you take with you? So Timbits. <laughs> However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, and it was full of maggots. <laughs> and began to smell. What's a public occasion for except to suck up to your boss? <laughs> so manna and maggots, and Moses was angry with them. It sounds even better, actually, in the King James Version. It bred worms and stank. They were, well, we don't know what they were. I mean, the, these. They, um, I'd eat one, but then I wouldn't be able to talk for several minutes, so I better not. They were maggots, or in the picture, you've got weevils down here. And they were probably one of the two, some little wormy thing, and you didn't want to eat it anyway. Though Moses had told them in advance that the manna, the mystery bread, was coming to them from the hand of God, they were afraid that it might not be there again tomorrow. So they took matter into their own hands and worked harder so that they could save enough for the next day. Bad idea. Clearly, God was trying to reinforce the lesson that it was he who would provide for his people day after day, in spite of the fact that they were being led through a wilderness and there was no obvious source of food. So back to the text. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left, is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Now, two or maybe three weeks ago now, Joan gave us a great message on the goodness, the gift, the blessing of work. And I was amening all through it. God gives us what we need, including the ability to work, to gather, to earn. But this verse about the Sabbath is the other part of the same lesson. Since it is God who provides, and not your work that earns your bread, you can rest in him and take the Sabbath that he gives as a gift. But we find it difficult to believe that. We find it difficult to believe that though he provided for us yesterday and today, he will provide for us again tomorrow. 
Maybe yesterday was a fluke. Maybe he'll forget about us tomorrow and we might be hungry. It would be a good idea to keep working and save up a little for insurance. Another bad idea. Nevertheless, the next verse says, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found bupkis. Sorry, that's Yiddish for nothing. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread enough for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna, or what is it? It was white like coriander seed and tasted like Timbits. So let's summarize. God gives the manna, we receive the manna. We really don't know what it is we're getting, so we name the stuff, what is this? But it's good. And there are just three simple instructions that come with it. Don't take more than one day's worth except on Friday, when you do take enough for both Friday and Sabbath, and don't bother going out on the Sabbath because you won't find any more. Ignore rule number one and you get what? Maggoty manna. Ignore rule number two and you end up with nothing to eat on the Sabbath. Ignore rule number three and you waste your time and energy and make Moses mad and you still end up with nothing to eat because it isn't there. So why these rules? So rule number one, don't keep it till the next day. That is, don't take more than one day's worth because this is God's own provision for you and he'll keep providing as long as it's needed. He will never leave you or forget about you or forget that you need to be fed. The only reasons that you might need more than enough for one day would be greed. That is, I want more than God is willing to give me, so I'll take a little extra. Or fear. How do I know that God will keep his promises? Now, the maggots are a powerful disincentive for greed. By causing his people to go out and take what he gives them for bread every single day, that's God's way of training our wonky human hearts to trust and not to fear, one day at a time. So when I suggest that the point of the story is that we learn to take the manna, you'll understand that by that I mean take today's manna, what has been provided for today, even if you don't know what it is, especially if you don't want to know what it is and including that special provision for Sabbath rest. Don't hold on to yesterday's blessing. That's rule number one. Rule number two, don't keep it for the next day except on Friday, when you should take enough for both Friday and the Sabbath because the invention of the Sabbath is a necessary curb, again, to greed and fear. You and I need rest, but greed says that if I work a little longer and a little harder, I'll have a little more. And fear says, if I don't work a little harder and a little longer, then maybe I won't have as much as I want. Greed and fear can destroy our rest. The Sabbath is yet another reminder that every good and perfect gift is not ultimately of our making at all. Whether we've worked for it or not, it comes down to us from the Father of the heavenly nights, with whom is no mutability, no shadow of turning. If it's wrong to try to hold on to yesterday's blessing, 
keeping back some manna until it looks like this, stinking and breeding maggots. It's equally wrong to try to force a blessing by our own efforts gathering on the Sabbath when we're not supposed to. So that brings us to rule number three again. Don't bother going out on the Sabbath because you won't find any more. The manna, the work to gather the manna and the Sabbath rest from gathering the manna are all equally gifts from God. Then you will know, the passage begins, that I am the Lord your God. If any of these things is not received as a gift, it becomes an idol. What we're given, the work we do to get it, or the education we get on the way to it, all of these can become so important to us that they forget what they were given for, to sustain us, to reinforce our trust in the God who provides. I want to illustrate that with a passage from who else but C.S. Lewis. And this is his, you thought it was my Bible. It sits beside my Bible, but it's not my Bible. It's a science fiction novel called Paralandra, which some of you know and many of you don't. In this book, he imagines the planet Venus as a tropical Eden made up not of solid land, but of floating islands. Islands woven together from fantastic and beautiful vegetation floating on a freshwater ocean, you can drink it, and thus constantly in motion. Islands meet each other on the waves and then part when the breezes blow or the currents shift. Lewis's protagonist, whose name is Ransom, knows, knows, this is important, knows that he's been called by God himself to come to this strange place, but has no idea why. What is it? He spends many days and nights on one of these floating islands before his first glimpse of what is apparently the only other human being on the entire planet. She's green, and she's also naked, but he doesn't hold either of those against her. They exchange a few words, calling across the water that separates their islands, but of course they can't approach each other. Hundreds of thousands of miles from his own home, even from his own planet, Ransom is in the grip of a kind of loneliness it's hard for us to imagine. This is a motivated man. So I want to read you just a bit. This is Ransom. He glanced at the sky. The many-colored furnace of the short-lived evening was kindled all about him. In a few minutes, it would be pitch black, and the islands were drifting apart. Ransom could have danced with impatience. Already, it was visibly darker, and there was no doubt now that the distance between the islands was increasing. Just as he was about to speak again, a wave rose between them, and once more, she was out of sight. And as that wave hung above him, shining purple in the light of the sunset, he noticed how dark the sky beyond had become. It was already through a kind of twilight that he looked down from the next ridge upon the other island far below. He flung himself into the water. For some seconds, he found a difficulty in getting clear of the shore. Then he seemed to succeed and struck out. Almost at once, he found himself back among the red weeds and bladders floating there. A moment or two of violent struggling followed, and then he was free and swimming steadily, and then, almost without warning, swimming in total darkness. He swam on, but despair of finding the other land or even of saving his life now gripped him. The perpetual change of the great swell abolished all sense of direction. It could only be by chance that he would land anywhere. Well, he does. I have to let you in on how that little episode ends. He wakes up to find that the next morning, 
all that nightmare of thrashing around in the dark waves and cheating death by seconds, he's managed to swim back to the very same floating island he'd been on before. And the other island, the one on, the green, on which the green lady is standing, and where she stands now, observing him, as he wakes up, her island is now floating next to his across five feet of calm water. In Lewis's novel, the metaphor that illustrates what it is to take God's gifts, his manna, without greedy hoarding or fearful self-effort, is to accept the wave that rolls towards you on the Paralandrian Sea. Embrace what comes, knowing that it will, like a wave, never come again in precisely the same form. If it divides you from something you want, like speaking to the green lady, you must trust that this too is part of God's provision. Wait for the floating islands to come together in God's time, or perish trying to force his hand. Take the manna that's offered you ransom. Don't grasp for what is not yet in God's plan for today. Now, you may have been wondering all this time why I mentioned that one verse at the beginning. Something as alien to you as the love of money. After all, if you're a student or a Tyndale employee, surely that temptation isn't likely to arise. <laughs> isn't it a bit like warning somebody who lives in Winnipeg not to be afraid of heights? It just doesn't come up. But remember that manna means something like I don't know what this is, but God gave it. It may not be money, but money is a convenient shorthand for any of God's gifts, like manna. A good thing when we accept it as a gift, and a very bad thing if we cling to it for protection. In fact, money is almost worthless when you think about it, until you exchange it for something that you can actually use, like timbits and gummy worms, like food of any kind, like clothing. And you could even barter for those without using money at all. You change the oil in my car, I'll write the essay that you have to submit to Dr. Fogg. <laughs> oh, there would be some takers. Or I'll give you my jacket in exchange for your turnip. It's actually a rutabaga. But there is one quality of money that we find irresistible. The real value of the stuff, as opposed to what you can exchange it for, is that you can keep it. You can pile it up if you can save more than you spend, and if you keep some of it for the next day, if you keep on gathering it after you have enough for your present needs, and yet it will apparently breed no maggots. Money is the manna that never spoils. But it's precisely because Money is the manna that never spoils. That Jesus says we can't serve both it and him. That is, we can't use money the way ancient Israel tried to use manna. To make themselves independent of God's daily provision. Hoarding it, or worrying if there will be enough tomorrow, or working past what we should be doing in order to get ahead of what's right for us. Do those things, and we've turned money into an idol. We put God's gift ahead of the giver, and you and I can't be the slave of both. Turns out that there may be maggots in that manna after all, which is perhaps why Paul wrote what he did to Timothy. The love of money is the rutabaga of all weevils.
Let's pray. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto us. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.